This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. We're ready to take the first real steps on this journey through the history of the Best Song Award given out by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. There are so many stories to tell about the 474 songs nominated for this award in its first 90 years, and the history of the award itself is just as interesting. At the first Academy Award ceremony in 1928, only three nominees were listed in many categories, except the Best Picture Award. At the time, that was only limited to five nominees. At the second, third, and fourth ceremonies, five nominees were allowed in all categories. The rules reverted back to only three nominees in all categories except Best Picture for the fifth awards year and stayed that way for the minor categories through 1936. So if you listened to the first episode, you remember that Hollywood released four classic movie musicals in 1933, which was the year before the Academy debuted the Best Song Award at its annual ceremony. There are no official memos or documents to state this, but it's clear that the Board of Governors and Academy President Theodore Reed realized that music made for motion pictures deserved to be a part of this annual celebration. No new category had been created for feature films since the second Academy Awards, even though movie making was making big strides forward. And so, the Academy introduced three new awards for films released in 1934, just in time for the seventh Academy Awards. The year 1934 might be important for this podcast because it was the first year movie songs were eligible for Academy Award recognition. But a lot more happened that year that, for better or for worse, definitely overshadowed what was going on with Academy voting. The famous gun-wielding robbers Bonnie and Clyde were killed in a surprise ambush in Louisiana in May 1934. That incident and more would be put on film 33 years later. Another criminal, John Dillinger, was shot outside the Biograph Theater in Chicago after watching the Clark Gable film Manhattan Melodrama in July 1934. And over in Germany, a young Adolf Hitler declared himself Führer. And happier news, the Three Stooges and Donald Duck made their film debuts, and future Oscar winners Shirley Jones and Shirley MacLaine were born. The list of awards on the first page of the rulebook for the 7th Academy Awards lists three new awards, one for film editing and two for music. One music award was for the underscore of a motion picture, and the other for, quote, the best musical composition, end quote. It does not use the word song anywhere in the rulebook for 1934. This best musical composition would honor the achievement of writing music and lyrics, and the winners of the category would not receive the Academy Award of Merit, which is the Oscar statuette we all know so well, but rather certificates of merit. This would be the award given to the winners of the music awards for this year and in 1935 before the composers and lyricists were upgraded in 1936. The rules do specify that the songs have to be written, quote, in connection with motion pictures, end quote, which is as close the Academy would get to using the word original for a few years. This meant all songs had to be performed for the first time in a movie instead of songs that were plucked out from past films 
or bought cheap from New York City's Tin Pan Alley Song Factory, no matter how popular the song might be or how well it works in the movie. The Academy also streamlined its process of determining which films were eligible for awards in 1934. Instead of starting the awards year in August of one year and running it to July of the following year, the Academy used the actual calendar to determine the awards eligibility calendar. After the sixth awards year ran from August 1932 to December 31, 1933, the Academy was ready to institute a literal calendar year in 1934, a practice that never changed, well, until the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. Nominations for the acting, writing, and directing categories were made by members of those branches of the Academy. Since there was no music branch at the time, the Academy had a special procedure to get its nominations. All songwriters in Hollywood were invited to nominate the best song they had written for a movie released in 1934, and also nominate two songs written by others. Essentially, this would give every songwriter a chance to have at least one nomination, but the tough part for many songwriters was to pick just one song out of many that they wrote, not unlike choosing your favorite child. The song that each songwriter submitted of theirs was not automatically guaranteed to be one that could end as a nominee. If you were a Hollywood songwriter in early 1935 sending in your Academy nomination ballot and the song you picked was popular enough to get a nomination, but your peers also thought of your other songs and they thought they were good enough, only the top vote-getter would be included. The second-place song that you wrote would be thrown out. When the submissions were tallied, the Academy had its first three nominations for the Best Song Award, which is what it was called in the official program for the ceremony held on February 27, 1935. Two of the nominees were almost identical to each other, while the third was a love song that would set a template for future movie love songs. All three would feature Hollywood rising stars who would become icons of the silver screen. Before we start examining the inaugural Oscar-nominated songs, I wanted to let you know that plot points will be revealed throughout this episode, so you have been adequately forewarned. And if I forget to mention it in future episodes, it still applies. I can't really talk about the songs without talking about the movie storylines. So our first nominee is the song Carioca from the film Flying Down to Rio, distributed by RKO Pictures in January 1934. The film mostly follows a band conductor named Roger Bond, played by Gene Raymond, who is attracted to a Brazilian woman he meets at a club in Miami where he is working. The woman's aunt disapproves of her niece getting together with a low-life band conductor, and the two seemingly are destined to never meet again. However, Roger is flying his plane to Rio de Janeiro for a new gig at a hotel opening there, and his newfound love, Belina, is tricked into flying with him in his two-seater prop plane from Miami to Haiti on the way to Rio. They crash on a beach and fall in love that night after Roger plays her a romantic melody for a song he's composing. The next morning, they discover they are actually on the island of Haiti, and Belina catches her plane. Roger spends a good deal of time pining for Belina, while the adjacent secondary plot line involves Roger's band. The band singer is played by Ginger Rogers as Honey Hales, working in her third film. Roger's friend and accordion player is Fred Ayers, played by Fred Astaire. The band goes to a nightclub in Rio to sample the sounds, smells, and tastes of the city. The Brazilian band leader suggests a foxtrot to honor their American visitors, but the locals suggest music for a dance called the Carioca. 
It starts rather simply with a trumpet and maracas, which the American musicians think is not very impressive. But a haunting beat swells and suddenly we get the main melody for the song. That's all these fellas can do. We're a cinch. Our band will be a sensation. Music for karaoke has a very strong Latin feel, evoking the flavor of Rio before a word of the song has been sung. The music was written by New York City-raised Vincent Yeomans, a veteran of Broadway who had collaborated with Ira Gershwin and Oscar Hammerstein II. Before he moved into writing for Hollywood movies, he was already a sought-after composer thanks to his composition T for Two from the Broadway show No No Nanette. Several re-recordings of that song made it a hit for decades. Yeomans wrote the music for four songs in Flying Down to Rio, and they would mark his only direct involvement in writing new music for movies. Yeomans contracted tuberculosis in 1934, the year Flying Down to Rio was released, and he retired soon after, unable to keep up with the hectic Hollywood pace. The lyricists for Flying Down to Rio were Gus Kahn and Edward Iliscu. Khan had been responsible for a lot of hits in the American songbook since he started writing lyrics in the 1920s. This is just a sampling of the songs that feature his lyrics. 
Toot Toot Tootsie, It Had to Be You, Making Whoopee, Yes Sir, That's My Baby, and Dream a Little Dream of Me. None of these songs were written for motion pictures, but a lot of them have appeared in many Hollywood hits in the past 50 years. Flying Down to Rio was his first Hollywood assignment. Edward Eliscu had worked with composer Vincent Yeomans for, in 1930 for the film Great Day, which was never completed. Flying Down to Rio was their next collaboration. It's not known how Eliscu and Khan worked together on creating the lyrics to the songs for Flying Down to Rio, but there is a great diversity in the songs we hear, including karaoke. It's the only song in the film to feature that Latin sound I mentioned earlier. We see the Brazilians dancing in a sensual manner on screen, not quite dirty dancing, but about as dirty as the sensory board would allow to be put on film at the time. The lyrics, which don't come in until five minutes into the song, also help you understand the feeling of the dance.
two women singing these lyrics get no credit in the film. Now, after that brief musical interlude, another woman repeats the earlier lyric before adding some new ones to finish out the song. This woman does get screen credit, and it's Etta Moten, who was having a banner year on screen. In 1933, she appeared in Gold Diggers of 1933, the movie that featured Ginger Rogers in her film debut. Moten played a war widow in that movie, and her performance makes her one of the first black women to not appear on screen as a maid, nanny, or housekeeper on film. In Flying Down to Rio, Etta Moten is one of the nightclub entertainers, and her singing comes when the dance floor is taken over by dark-skinned dancers. After watching the locals dance the karaoke, Fred and Ginger decide to add their own flavor to it with some tap dancing and soon-to-be-trademark dance moves of their own before Etta Moden returns to close out the lengthy scene. Say, have you seen that karaoke? It's not a foxtrot or a polka. Tricky, a bit of wicked back But when you dance it with your new love, I'll be true love and high. You won't dream of a new carry It seems is a kiss and a sigh. I'll say you gotta dream of a new Thank you. 
you dance it with it, you love that we love that for you. The karaoke song and the on-screen dancing could have been cut from the film and not taken away from the plot. But we should be very thankful that it stayed in the picture because it features the film dancing debut of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers who would dance their way into the hearts of moviegoers around the world through the 1930s and 1940s. Though this would be the first time we see them together on screen, the two knew each other for many years in New York. In his 1959 autobiography, Astaire wrote that, quote, Gender and I hadn't any idea at all that we were destined to start something in this first movie together. She had already proven herself, but I was just a yokel from the East, an unknown quantity in this medium. End quote. Astaire stings the title tune, Flying Down to Rio, in the climax of the film, performing on the patio of the hotel as airplanes fly above with the dancing ladies on the wings. The love song that Roger began composing on the beach for Belina is performed at a private club called Orchids in the Moonlight. Though these two songs had more influence on the film's plot, it's obvious that Karaoke was the more humble tune of any of the movie's songs. So it would be no surprise that Yeomans, Khan, and Elisku submitted it for consideration for the first Academy Award for Best Song. Astaire and Rogers made such an impression on the executives at RKO Pictures during the editing of Flying Down to Rio that they rushed to produce a movie featuring them in the lead roles. That movie was The Gay Divorcee, and it features our second nominee for Best Song in 1934. The movie was adapted from a hit Broadway musical called The Gay Divorce, and the name was changed because studio executives didn't want to give audiences the impression that a divorce was fun and exciting, which is the definition of gay in the 1930s. No matter that Broadway audiences didn't mind the title, The Gay Divorce, which wasn't really well-received by theater critics, was Fred Astaire's final appearance on Broadway after 25 years of mild success. He decided to make the shift to Hollywood, even though he thought, quote, I didn't think I had too much of a chance, end quote. And Hollywood executives weren't too optimistic about his chances either. The popular and seemingly true story that has been told for decades is the one that one studio head wrote that Astaire was, quote, slightly bald and can't act. But the note did praise Astaire's ability to dance. David Selznick, who would become one of the first big Hollywood moguls, remarked that Astaire had, quote, enormous ears and a bad chin line, end quote, but had tremendous charm. The makeup department working on flying down to Rio tried to fix the ear problem that he had by taping them down, but that didn't last long. The hot set sometimes melted the wax that served to hold his ears back, and Astaire would spend only the first two of his movies with noticeably smaller ears. When Fred Astaire started dancing with Ginger Rogers and flying down to Rio, it was obvious both Astaire and Rogers were made to be in front of movie cameras and to be dancing together. They proved that with The Gay Divorcee, featuring a plot that closely mirrored that of Flying Down to Rio, but with Fred and Ginger playing the couple taking 90 minutes of screen time to fall in love. Fred is a successful dancer traveling with his lawyer friend in Paris. They board a boat to London where Fred's character, Guy Holden, meets Ginger's character, Mimi, 
when her dress is stuck in her aunt's trunk. Guy tries to find Mimi in London, but it's not until they find themselves at a seaside resort on the English coast that the real hijinks ensue. Mimi wants a divorce from her husband, and she's at the resort to use an Italian as her lover. Guy sees Mimi and tries to win her over with another great Astaire Rogers dance number to the Cole Porter song Night and Day. This song was performed in the Broadway musical, so it's not going to be eligible for the Academy Award. But the song became one of the great romance song standards of the 20th century and has outlived the song that would be the film's representative for the Best Song Academy Award, The Continental. For reasons I won't go into here because you should see the film and because it might be too confusing to put into words, Guy and Mimi find themselves unable to leave Mimi's hotel room one night, though they see the hotel guests dancing outside their window. Mimi recognizes the dance, called The Continental, hums the melody a bit, and begins to sing the words to the song that accompanies it. Doesn't sound like the prisoner's song to me. <laughs> Bad tune. What is it? It's the newest thing over here. It's called the Continental. The Continental? Mm-hmm. Oh. I like it. That's the second thing I've found I'd like to take back home with me. You know the words? Mm-hmm. Beautiful music. Dangerous rhythm. It's something daring, the Continental. A way of dancing that's really ultra new. It's very subtle, the Continental. Because it does what you want it to do. It has a passion, the Continental. An invitation to moonlight and romance. It's quite the fashion, the Continental. Because you tell of your love while you dance. Your lips whisper so tenderly. Arise, answer your song. Two bodies swaying the continental. And you are saying just what you're dreaming of. So keep on dancing the continental. For it's a song of romance and of love. You kiss while you're dancing. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> continental, mm, it's continental. You sing while you're dancing. Your voice is gentle and sentimental. You stroll together, arm in arm. You nonchalantly glide along. With grace and charm, you will find. While you're dancing, that there's a rhythm in your heart and soul, a certain rhythm that you can control. And you will do the continental all the time. Like Carioca, the Continental is mostly instrumental. After Ginger Rogers sings about the dance, there's a full six minutes showing us the Continental, which is a combination of the minuet and a foxtrot. It's not sweaty or lustful like the Carioca, but elegant and stately. The Carioca was a dance seemingly made for the lower class. The Continental is for the upper class. Everyone in the Continental scene is dressed in formal wear, including the orchestra playing the music in the scene. 
Guy and Mimi manage to get downstairs to the dance floor and show everyone what real dancing is like. And I wish I could show it to you here. They have the dance floor to themselves for about two minutes before receiving thunderous applause from the crowd. Hermes Pan did the choreography for Fred and Ginger on Carioca and the Continental. In his autobiography, Astaire said he relished working on the Continental dance more than the Carioca because more time was given to them for rehearsal after the positive feedback in flying down to Rio. The dancing looks trickier in The Gay Divorcee, and the music by Con Conrad for the Continental is shaped to conform the dance moves. Conrad is another New York-born composer who came to Hollywood after an extensive career writing Broadway musicals. Two of the songs he wrote in the 1920s, You Got to See Mama Every Night and Ma, He's Making Eyes at Me, were used in Woody Allen's 1994 period comedy Bullets Over Broadway. Conrad's shows weren't doing too well by the end of the 1920s, and he moved to Hollywood as movies transitioned to sound and wanted to dazzle audiences with his music. The lyrics for The Continental were written by Herb Magidson, who also moved to Hollywood from the East Coast in the late 1920s at 23 years old. As a contract player in Hollywood, he went there because the assignment took him there, 
and it never really amounted to anything until he was asked by director Mark Sandrich to write a song for a dance he was working on for his two lead actors in The Gay Divorcee. Though the film is set in London, Madgerton's lyrics implied that the dance was created on the European continent and was a sensation worldwide, especially since Mimi, an American, knows it well. As I mentioned earlier, the plot involves Mimi trying to convince her husband that she is having an affair with an Italian gigolo. That man is played by American Eric Rhodes, who originated the role of Tanetti on Broadway and provides some good comic relief. He sings a verse of the song while watching the dancers below, not knowing that Mimi is down there. Beautiful music, dangerous rhythm, something daring, the continental, a way of dancing that's really out for you. It's very subtle, the continental, because it does what you want it to do. It has a passion, the continental, an invitation to moonlight and romance. It's quite the fashion, the continental, because you tell of your love while you dance. Your lips whisper so tenderly, her eyes answer your song. Your body sways, the continental, and you are saying just what you're thinking of. So keep on dancing, the continental, for it's the song of romance and of love. While you're dancing, continental, continental, you sing while you're dancing. Your voice is gentle, so sentimental. You know before the dance is true that you're in love with she and she's in love with you. You'll find while you're dancing. There's a rhythm in your heart and soul, said rhythm that you can control. You will be continental all the time. And there's one more verse of the song, sung by Lillian Miles, playing a random hotel guest. The song closes out with Fred and Ginger giving us a fast-paced dance to the main melody before they return to their room. Dukes and lords of noble station love the new sophistication of the continental. In the Belgian hallroom, in the Monte Carlo ballroom, you will see the continental. In the Paris bistro, crowded with the bash, you will see the continental in the best French fashion. Spain and Italy, Transylvania, Norway, Sweden, and Romania do the continental. On the sides of Cider Sea, the wooden shoes have found the key to continental. It's like a fever, it's like a Didn't so mild you sing while you're dancing. Or gentle, it's 
control to touch a pan-continental, a meter that you understand, you know, before the dance is through that you're in love with her and she's in love with you, you'll find while you're dancing, there's a rhythm in your heart and soul, a certain rhythm that you can't control the continental.
Sandrich's direction helped change the way songs were presented on film. In the early days of sound in movies, the songs were usually recorded live, with an orchestra playing the music either on screen if it fit the plot, or off screen if it didn't. Sandrich felt this was too costly and decided to have the music and lyrics recorded before filming and played back on set for the actors to lip sync. Even though we see an orchestra playing on the dance floor during the Continental number, what we hear is music that had been performed weeks earlier. The Gay Divorcee is one of the first films to do this and would set the trend for many decades to follow. Night and Day was the only song from the Broadway musical that carried over to the film version, which is not a surprise since it was the one dance number of the Broadway production that was unanimously praised. In addition to The Continental, Conrad and Magidson wrote a great dance song for a stare called A Needle in a Haystack as his character sings about trying to find Mimi in London. Two other songs were written for the film as show-stopping dance numbers for other members of the cast besides Astaire and Rogers, but those are not essential to the plot. They were written by Mac Gordon and Harry Revel, called Don't Let It Bother You and Let's Knock Knees. The songwriters were on loan from Paramount Pictures, where they had been working as a songwriting team in 1932. Since Academy Award rules allowed songwriters to submit only one song that they felt was their best of the year, it's likely that Gordon and Revel decided to please their bosses at Paramount and submit a song from one of the four films they worked on there, and not these two songs from an RKO movie. It's not known which song they submitted for Academy Award consideration, but it was likely not any of the songs they wrote for She Loves Me Not. The studio executives hedged their bets on a song in She Loves Me Not, written by Leo Robin and Ralph Ranger, called Love in Bloom and it paid off with an Academy Award nomination. It's a duet by two new Hollywood actors, Kitty Carlisle and Bing Crosby. Kitty Carlisle's name might not be well known to film fans of the 21st century, but I'm sure you know who Bing Crosby is. Carlisle was raised mostly in Europe before returning to the States to be an actress in 1932. She made her Hollywood debut in 1934 with She Loves Me Not and three other films, including A Night at the Opera featuring the Marx Brothers. Her main ambition was to be a great female radio star, and she was making a stop in Hollywood movies on the way to her eventual radio fame and later on as a regular panelist on the game show To Tell the Truth in the 1950s. As for Bing Crosby, you likely know him as one of the best singers in history and an Oscar-winning actor. That was much later. Before he started in movies, he spent much time on the stage singing with various groups across the country in New York, Chicago, and his home state of Washington. In 1931, he sang some of the hottest songs on the radio and was one of the most popular radio stars of the day. At a time when male singers used to belt their songs to reach the back of the music halls, Crosby's smooth and easy tones stood out and helped his immense popularity. Crosby made the term crooner popular, even as many said this style of singing would not last more than a couple of years. Well, Crosby definitely proved him wrong. Crosby appeared in 16 films before filming She Loves Me Not, but those were mostly him singing a song as himself, with no connection to the characters or plot. She Loves Me Not has Crosby playing a Princeton senior named Paul, who is studying to become a doctor but has some amazing songwriting talents. The film revolves around a nightclub dancer named Curly, played by Miriam Hopkins, who witnesses a murder 
while she's performing and runs off to avoid dealing with the police and the murderer. She hides out in Paul's dorm room at Princeton until various people descend on the dorm to take advantage of the publicity. This sounds very much like a precursor to the classic film Some Like It Hot, though here the plot and characters aren't very well written. It's mostly a vehicle for Miriam Hopkins' over-the-top comedy and to give Bing Crosby a chance to carry the film as a top-billed actor. In order to keep his involvement with Curly a secret, Paul goes to the dean at Princeton to get rid of a telegram written by his uncle. While waiting for the dean, Paul runs into the dean's daughter, Midge, who is playing one of Paul's songs on the piano. The two sing that song, Straight from the Shoulder, which is a sweet song, but not the film's top song. Paul begins to play Love and Bloom after he and Midge tear up the telegram implicating Paul in Curly's appearance at Princeton. Paul essentially makes up the song as he plays it for Midge, and in the midst of performing it, begins to fall in love with Midge. The song is definitely about the act of falling in love with someone, using horticultural terms to describe the blossoming affection that Paul feels for Midge. Bing Crosby's performance with Katie Carlisle is filmed live on set, with the pianist and a few violins playing off-screen in reportedly just three takes to catch the performances from different angles. It's obvious that Crosby is trying to make sure his performance is picked up by the microphones as he's trying to belt out the long notes louder and more operatic than we're accustomed to hearing from him. But he and Carlisle keep the sweetness in the song, which has a lyric that overshadows the melody. But that doesn't mean the melody should be ignored. It allows Robin's lyric to pose questions, begin the resolved, then use the title to offer the full resolution. They're stopped before the song is finished when Midge's father walks into the room. Blue night and you, alone with me, my heart has never known such ecstasy. Am I on earth? Am I in heaven? Can it be the trees that fill the breeze with rare and magic perfume? Oh no, it isn't the trees, it's love in blue. Can it be the spring that seems to bring the stars right into the sun? Oh, no, it isn't the spring. 
might remember Leo Robin as the lyricist behind one of Maurice Chevalier's most loved songs, What Would You Do?, from the film One Hour With You. Ranger changed his name from Ralph Rickenthal in the mid-1920s as he was settling into his career as a composer. Like most Hollywood songwriters of the time, Ranger cut his teeth on Broadway, writing songs with Robin for the show Tattletales. The two found it difficult to switch their songwriting talents for Broadway to writing for film. Said Robin in a 1936 interview, quote, On stage, after all, you can aim at a particular audience. You can please just New York or just a small portion of New York. In pictures, you have to please the whole country and most of the world besides. The songs must have universal appeal, get down to something that every human being feels and can understand. That isn't so hard, really, once you get the trick of simplicity, end quote. And Love and Bloom is one of the simplest songs in She Loves Me Not. The others try to be catchy with the melody or lyrics, while Love and Bloom takes a theme and writes around that. It's so simple that when Paul and Midge reprise the song at the end of the film, you might find yourself able to sing along. The two are talking over the phone after Paul decides to leave Princeton once the hijinks involving Curly go too far. Midge is sitting at the piano tinkling out the Love and Bloom melody, and Paul urges Midge to sing it to him before they say goodbye. The performance shows Paul and Midge's faces superimposed over shots of cloudy skies before Midge hangs up the phone in tears. Midge, are you playing Love and Bloom? I think so. I just thought it would be nice to remember you singing our song. Did you? Won't you? No. Can it, can it be the trees that fill the breeze with rare and magic perfume? Oh, no, it isn't the trees, it's love in blue. Be the spring that seems to bring the stars right into this room. Oh, no, it isn't the spring. It's love and blue. 
So those are the three nominees for the inaugural Best Song Academy Award, Carioca, The Continental, and Love in Bloom. Because the Academy limited the number of nominees to just three, a lot of songs were left out in the cold. Two of those non-nominated songs have gained a much longer life than any of those three nominees. The first one comes from the film Dames, and it's called I Only Have Eyes for You. The song comes about 24 minutes into the film when Dick Powell's character, a songwriter looking to put on a Broadway show, wants to tell Ruby Keeler's character, a wannabe dancer, how much he loves her. The two are on a New York City ferry with the city in the background and an orchestra playing on the ferry. Now, I wasn't alive in 1934, but I know they don't have musicians in formal wear on New York ferries in the 21st century. But the ambience is perfect for Powell's character, Jimmy to sing about his love for Keeler's character, Barbara. This is how I feel about you. My love must be a kind of blind love. I can't see anyone but you. And dear, I wonder if you find love. An optical illusion Are the stars out tonight? I don't know if it's cloudy or bright Cause I only have eyes for you, dear The moon may be high But I can't see a thing in the sky Cause I only have eyes for you Millions of people go by, but they all disappear from view. I only have eyes for you. Gee, Jimmy, that's well. I Only Have Eyes For You gets a reprise when Barbara meets Jimmy at the theater where he's selling tickets. They walk to the subway while Jimmy sings the song, and a policeman joins in as well as a woman selling newspapers, very similar to Isn't It Romantic from 1933. They get to the subway train where Jimmy serenades Barbara to sleep with the song, and as Jimmy finishes the song, he imagines the faces on advertisements changing to Barbara's face and it segues into a four-minute dance sequence featuring a chorus of women dancing with Barbara appearing every once in a while.
Eyes for You was written by Harry Warren and Al Dubin, who had crafted a few great songs in the pre-Best Song era. You'll remember a couple of them from the previous episode, including 42nd Street from the musical of the same name, and We're in the Money from Gold Diggers of 1933, featuring Ginger Rogers' singing debut. Warren and Dubin weren't fated to be a part of Oscar history in 1934 with I Only Have Eyes for You, but they were definitely in the money later in life when the song was covered by the Flamingos in 1958. My love must be a kind of blind love I can't see anyone but you Art Garfunkel also covered this song in 1975. And Al Dubin wasn't alive to hear these versions, but Warren was alive, and the royalties he raked in likely took away the sting of losing out on an Oscar nomination for that song. Another song that was not nominated in 1934 is On the Good Ship Lollipop, sung by one of the greatest child actors in movie history, Shirley Temple. The song appears in the film Bright Eyes, which is the nickname given to Temple's character, a precocious five-year-old who becomes orphaned in the film and is involved in a custody battle between a mean family and a kind-hearted pilot. You can guess who wins just based on those descriptions alone. Bright Eyes was Temple's seventh film, and she becomes a star with this performance. 
She sings on the good ship Lollipop while she is in a plane being taxied around the runway as a Christmas gift to her character. During this adventure, Shirley sings a song not about an actual ship, but about a plane that flies them to a magical land filled with delicious candy. This is the Candyland Hour for all good children. The orchestra will play our theme song. You know that song, don't you? Sure I do. Well, then sing it. Come on. Come on, Shirley, sing it. Shirley Temple was like a magnet for moviegoers, especially as they struggled through the Great Depression. The film Bright Eyes was a huge moneymaker for Fox Film Studios, which would later become 20th Century Fox, and reports indicate that the receipts from the film helped Fox stave off bankruptcy. For her work on this film and Little Miss Marker the same year, Shirley Temple was awarded a miniature Academy Award for the Best Juvenile Performance of the Year. But Richard Whiting and Sidney Clare did not bag an Academy Award nomination for On the Good Ship Lollipop. Whiting had a big hit with its Tulip Time in Holland in 1914, selling a million copies of the record, which was definitely a big success at the time. But as was the custom of the time, many songwriters never owned the rights to their work, and Whiting never got royalties for the sales of the record because the song belonged to the Rimmick Publishing House. Whiting had been working with various collaborators in Hollywood since 1928, but nothing made much of a mark until On the Good Ship Lollipop became a wild success. As for Claire, he had written Ma, He's Making Eyes at Me in 1921 and was just your average songwriter until he wrote this song for Shirley Temple. We should celebrate the collaboration between Whiting and Claire because the Oxford Dictionary credits them with coming up with the term rock and roll which they used as a song title for the film Transatlantic Merry-Go-Round, also in 1934. Rock and roll in this film is describing the large waves of the ocean and its effect on the tidal ship, not a style of music. Rock and roll, yeah! Rock and roll, and rock away. Tonight the moon hangs low, hold tight or over. 
overboard we'll go. Rock and roll like a rocking chair. Laugh and smile while we drown each care in the tide as we glide to the rolling rockin' rhythm of the sea. Rock and roll, roll and rock away. But the best song of the year for both Whiting and Claire was The Good Ship Lollipop, and it's very likely that it was submitted for consideration as an Academy Award nominee. Even though it didn't make the list, it became Shirley Temple's signature song and was voted the 69th best song of the first 100 years of movies by the American Film Institute in 2004. The first Academy Award for Best Song was handed out as part of the 7th Academy Awards ceremony at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles on February 27, 1935. Actor Irving Cobb named the winners in all 16 categories, including a historic five Oscars to It Happened One Night, starring Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. There was an uproar in Hollywood and in national media that Betty Davis hadn't received a nomination for her acting in Of Human Bondage, and many were expecting her to win through a write-in vote. That didn't happen, but it certainly created some buzz and interest in this year's Academy Awards. In 1935, the songs were not performed for guests in attendance, and none of the radio listeners heard any interpretation of the songs. So, with very little fanfare, the Oscar for Best Song was presented to Con Conrad and Herb Magidson for The Continental. Magidson was only 29 years old when he walked onto the stage to receive the award, becoming one of the youngest non-acting people to win an Oscar. We'll see how long he maintains this record for the youngest winner of the Best Song Oscar. Its sister award, Best Scoring, was handed to One Night of Love with its score composed by Kenneth Webb and Samuel Hoffenstein, featuring opera songs and other tunes not original to the film. At the time, the score award was given to the studio's music department and not the composers, a weird decision given that the song award was handed directly to the composer and lyricist. But these rules will change in a few years. The Continental not only makes history as the first song to win the Academy Award, but it's the first Oscar-winning song about dancing. But it certainly won't be the last. Fred Astaire only whistles a couple of notes in the song, but he would sing a more intimate jazz version of the song for a 1952 album. Its notoriety mostly remains due to it being the first Oscar-winning song. For the first few years of its existence, the Academy released the vote tallies publicly to let nominees know how they fared in the competition. In the first year of the Best Song Award, Love and Bloom finished second, while Karaoke was third. Now, this practice of announcing vote tallies would end the following year. So Love and Bloom found an interesting life after Bing Crosby and Miriam Hopkins introduced it. Crosby sang a solo version of the song that year with a fuller orchestra, and the record sales were among the highest of 1934. But when comedian Jack Benny decided to take the song as his official theme, his off-key version became so synonymous with him that Kitty Carlisle dropped the idea of making Love and Bloom her theme song. 
Even though he didn't get to sing the Continental, Fred Astaire would make up for it the very next year, performing two of the three Oscar-nominated songs for 1935. One of them will become a signature song for Astaire, and we'll find out in the next episode if it became an Oscar-winning song. I hope you'll take the time to send me your comments and questions about anything you've heard in this or any episode of the Best Song Podcast. Just send an email to jeffswim at aol.com, and I promise you I will read it. Again, the email is jeffswim, J-E-F-F-S-W-I-M, at aol.com. It's been a pleasure singing along with you on this episode. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.